Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. The alt-right and the far-right, nationalism and nativism, the extremes of the right wing, are on the rise. How we fight it remains the big question for progressives. In a polarised political age, stopping fascism gaining traction must be a priority. I'm Progress Deputy Editor Connor Pope and I'm joined by my colleagues Richard Angel and Henna Shah and our guest today, Gurinder Singh Josan, a board member of Hope Not Hape and a centre-left candidate in the current elections to Labour's NEC. You've worked in fighting uh, the far right in this country for quite a long time now. How have the far right's tactics changed over time, do you think? Uh, well, due, due in my own experience, um, when I was university, the, the, what, what we saw at that time was it was very much, it was a, uh, it was, it was a non-street battle. It was um, uh, very aggressive, very violent, and it was very, very much a case of um, you know, certainly for ethnic minority communities, where you would either you would you would steer very clear of certain areas, or mm-hmm. you you would be very careful in terms of what you what you got involved in. And then over time, what we saw was um, the BMP became very prominent, started getting uh, one or two councillors elected, and suddenly thought that this is the way they were going to change the world. And they had an electoral strategy for yeah, the first that, time. Yeah, that's right. So they, they created an electoral strategy and, and then they, 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 at one point they were becoming quite successful. And I'm in Sandwell. I was elected in uh, 2002 as a mm-hmm. councillor in Sandwell and, and we saw four councillors elected at one time in Sandwell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we saw, you know, places like Barking and Dagenham, they were on the verge of taking control of the council in Stoke. They were on the verge of taking control of the council. Uh, there was elected mayor until that system was changed. So they they, they had a very uh, clear strategy to hide away some of the stuff that they didn't want people to see uh, and, and become very much more focused on the electoral strategy. And then over time, and I think because of the work good people have done, um, that, that that's kind of uh, failed for them as well. And now with what we're seeing now, and, and then after, after BMP, we saw UKIP become mm. very prominent. And we're now seeing a re-emergence of some of that more violent and uh, some of the more uh, kind of aggressive behaviour we, we saw previously. Um, and I think we're kind of getting now a, a kind of a, a mix of, of strategies coming mm. through. 
So it was, it was about 2009, I think, when the BNP possibly peaked electorally by getting a couple of MEPs elected in the European elections. And after that, they fell apart quite quickly. And we saw the rise of the EDL, which was much more focused on on this kind of street campaigning. But actually, what we've seen over the past couple of years as well is um, much more of a focus on terrorist activity. Uh, obviously, two years ago, Labour MP Joe Cox was murdered. Last year, one man, Makram Ali, was killed after an attack on Finchbury Park Mosque during Ramadan. And earlier this month, several men were jailed for being members of neo-Nazi group National Action following the foiling of a plot to kill Labour MP Rosie Cooper. I know Hope Not Hate were integral in foiling the National Action assassination attempt. How worried do you think we should be about the rise of far-right terrorist activity in Britain? We should be very worried, and the authorities should be very worried by it as well. It's something, and Hope Not Hate and some, some of us have been saying for a very long time, that the authorities need to be taken much more seriously. National Action, that's the first far-right organisation ever to be prescribed by the, mm. by the government, just mm. over about, probably about a year, 18 months ago. First one ever, but if you look at the prescribed organisations list, there's so many others of, of, of you know uh, Islamic background or, or others. But uh, I certainly think that actually there's a case for for more to be done in certain terms of some of the far right organisations we've got at the moment. But the other the other thing we're seeing with the with 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 some of the terrorist atrocities we've had, some of the ones which gather or create more headlines. Uh, are attributed to to Islam, Islamic extremists, but actually mm-hmm. there, there's been a whole host of uh, people sent to prison in the UK for far right uh, mm-hmm. extremist and terrorist activities, and yet sometimes they don't get to see, uh, we don't get to see and hear about them in the same way in the media, um, and they're perhaps not taken as seriously. But actually, the threat is very real and very there. Or they're made out to be kind of lone rangers in some way, aren't they? There's this kind of sense that they're unwell or they seem very much the exceptions, but there does seem a pattern. I think what you were saying there about if you think about how it's changed, the 70s and 80s, it felt like it was closed groups organising then on streets aggression. And then that did change in the kind of 90s, 2000s to more public meetings and electoral strategy. And thankfully, exposure was a really important one. And I know Hope Not Hate did some amazing work at just portraying uh, not just that people were electing holocaust deniers or whatever but they wouldn't turn up to meetings they were claiming all their expenses they were kind of they weren't good at the basics either and they brought those two things together that these people's actual project was not about voters but about this kind of horrible fringe element but the bit now is that how it's moved online and how it seems to have moved to constant and public provocation in various ways, of which terrorism is, I think, just one of the articulations of that. And you've got Steve Bannon going around, you know, saying we should be proud to be called racist. And there's that, there feels like that's very much now part of the raison d'etre of how the right work is own your truth. They're doing the kind of, it's almost like their version of identity politics at the other extreme. And they're like, yeah, call me that. I'll own it. That's what's really worrying because it's not obvious then to how do you expose? You know, so it was a great mm. thing. I remember in Birmingham when a BNP councillor got elected by accident because they'd miscounted an election of which there were two positions available. And, and so they, they declared the BNP elected and then they had to get none avoid. But the, the kind of work that we had to do in that. But part of it was exposing what they were really like. How do you expose people who are putting proactively videos on YouTube saying, I am this, I am proud of this. And that's I think, a big worry going forward. Hannah, what do you think? Does the far right seem to have more strategies and tactics than it previously did? Well, I think it's interesting because I think coming on the back of what you said, Richard, and what Gwyneth said earlier, I actually, and when you're talking about 
the Finsbury Park Mosque attack sort mm. of brought to mind. So I live actually right opposite Finsbury Park Mosque. On the day it happened, I come home after leaving out and the place was just chock-a-block with journalists and, you know, it was horrible. You couldn't move for people. And what I thought really interesting was the media representation or seeing journalists and journalists sort of trying to collar me when I was trying to leave my house mm. to tell me, you know, who had done this, you know, what was the cause, why this happened. And actually the profiling of the attacker, I'm, and when you hear about it now, and the anniversary was quite recently, it was about a month ago, everywhere the media reports pretty much universally said the perpetrator of the Frinsbury Park attack. They shied away from using this label of terrorist or from sort of painting the perpetrator as someone who was involved in this kind of damaging ideology in a way that I don't think the media has a problem with with Islamist extremists. Mm. And I think this feeds into what you're saying, Richard, as well, with because the media isn't inclined to label these extremist ideologies as terrorist ideologies. Actually, it's much easier to say, this is me, I'm here, this is an identity that I have. And in a way, it seems like the far right feels justified in reclaiming a sense of identity politics that they feel has been taken away from them by lots of groups who've started in the past sort of 20 years to assert themselves, whether that's women, Muslims, LGBT people, whatever it is. And I think that's a problem here. It's a mislabeling of it. Don't know whether you agree. I think that's true, but I wonder if it's also about the leadership of those groups. So there's clearly Daesh-inspired hate and terrorism that is happening around the world. And there is a kind of, even though it might be very informal, there is a kind of hierarchy to these things and a sense out there that some of these things are approved by that group and some that are not. Mm -hmm. Almost the bit that is worrying is the shattering of what was then the National Front that became the BNP, there is a myriad of groups fighting for what that new far-right party, far-right organism will be. And the danger is Bannon from the kind of alt-right in the States is claiming that for himself. Um, and what you might then see is that get organised clearer. But the fact that you know, some of the groups that are doing this are new names, to, they're not recognisable in the way that others have been in the past or might be in other forms of terrorism. And I wonder whether that's part of it. Obviously, what is trying to happen here is people through the internet are trying to inspire people who are angry to take agency over their situation and misdirect that at people. So it doesn't necessarily need to be well organised because it's they don't want to take credit for the individual. They just want to raise the level of hate and anger. How you deal with that is... I think those who are leading the charge on this, even in this new wave now, and it is very much internet-based, it is across borders, it is um, international, and you know some of the key figures, let's not, you know, uh, a lot of the key figures are based in the UK. You look at some of the people on the on the alt-right who have the largest followings on, on social media, they're, they're British-based people. Um, and you know, in the top 10, probably at least five or six of them will be in the UK. But their motivation is the same as, as it's always. It's all about power, yeah? the, and how it plays out. And and, and you know they they obviously they they understand the way politics is changing. They understand the way media is changing. They understand the way people get the news. They understand people, the way people uh, interact with each other, and they're taking advantage of that. Absolutely, they are. Um, the challenge for us is I, I think the biggest challenge here is is how do we make sure that those people in our communities who actually 
don't believe in this this stuff. Those people who are are, are afraid of this. Those people who have a, a vested interest in making sure that the the far right does, doesn't proliferate. That they they they're empowered to be able to stand up and and say so uh, and organise and uh, effectively as well. I think one one of the things that I've always seen is actually in you you, you track the far right and and. And it has a big link with politics. And, and mm. you remember, you know, back in, in the 79 general election, uh, Margaret Thatcher made some really right-wing uh, speeches, which actually stopped the National Front in their, in their track. And, mm-hmm. and, and the, 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 the right of the Tory party kind of swallowed up some of that right-wing uh, empathy out there. And, and we see that playing out again and again and again. And it is, there's a real kind of fine boundary between what, what, what becomes acceptable and what isn't acceptable. And I think we've pushed on that over time. The other thing I see actually is with, with far right extremists and with Islamic extremists, actually, you know, they are two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. They need each other to 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 as recruiting sergeants effectively mm-hmm. to point out and and to recruit to their own cause. You know, the underlying thing with the far right here is where they 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 may be disparate in terms of where they're based and in terms of how they're organising and and the audiences they're pushing to, but actually some of the messages they're using are pretty pretty consistent across all of them. So, uh, you know, a very anti-Islamist message, a a, a very uh, anti-immigration, you know, a very anti-progressive message, very regressive message that they're pushing pushing across across all of them. But also very, very, as Richard said earlier, you know, people who are very now proud to stand up and say, yeah, this is who I am. What's Um, the problem with that? We need to take a short break there, but I do want to pick up on some of those points just after the break where we talk about where the uh, fringe meets the mainstream and, and the influence of Steve Bannon. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. My name is Jasmine Beckett and I'm standing for the Labour Party's National Executive Committee. Along with my fellow centre-left candidates for the NEC, we are campaigning for Labour Party members to have a say on Brexit at Labour Party conference. All members want a say on the biggest issue facing our country at the moment. You can sign up to the campaign now at laboursay.eu. 
Former EDL leader Tommy Robinson, so-called Tommy Robinson, was recently jailed for contempt of court after filming outside a trial that reporting restrictions placed on it. His profile seems to be continuing to rise with help of extremist American conservatives and UKIP's leader, Gerard Batten. Do we think that this is a sign of things to come in British politics and a UKIP trying to normalise Islamophobia? Um, Hannah, can I come to you first on this? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's part of a much larger picture. And I think we forget about that because we just see free Tommy Robinson. For us, I think Tommy Robinson is sort of disintegrated into a figure of fun a little bit over the past five years for us of the EDL. They don't Mm. really matter. They're a bit lame, whatever. But I think you can see that this is part of a much larger sort of playing field that's international in scope and it's part of this culture war. I think you see now people on the alt-right in America funneling money into this sort of free Tommy Robinson ridiculous protest and actively trying to make a martyr out of him because they see, as Yorinda, as you said, lots of their main people sort of speak from the UK and they see the UK as maybe a decent base after the Brexit vote for transporting their ideology across Europe and further mm. than America where it is now. And it's clearly a strategy whereby they're picking him as a martyr and a scapegoat as sort of the next stage in the development of this culture war and moving it past sort of what we've seen in the United States into sort of the realm of political discourse here. And I think that's really worrying. I think it's more than just one or two people sort of banging some drums on the street now. It's a coordinated attack on our system Mm. and on our culture by forces much greater than ourselves. UKIP seems to be having a kind of mini revival in the polls. Does anyone think that they'll have a a comeback or or are they more likely to be replaced with something else, possibly even worse? I mean, I I thought for a while uh, Nigel Farage will come back in some guys at some Mm. point. I think the, the, the the big danger I see is that we, we Brexit happened in some way, but actually doesn't deliver anything near anything that was promised. And you get a, a, a right-wing backlash against that, a reactionary backlash against that. And that was the really worrying thing, actually. And, and I can see us kind of on the trajectory heading towards that mm. because the, the Brexit that, that, that's been talked about that may possibly be delivered is not going to deliver anything for anybody, effectively, in terms of what people voted for. Um, you know, the probably the biggest issue that people voted on in, in, in the Brexit referendum was about immigration. Well, you know, this isn't going to stop immigration uh, into, into the UK. It's not going to uh, take brown and black faces off yeah. our streets. That, that, that's not going to happen. But and in in those circumstances, I could see that actually there will be a real backlash against against the the, the establishment and the state and, and 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 people. And the very big danger is there's enough in the system that suggests that it's not the it's not the Brexit was the problem. It's the Brexit that we've got is a compromise, a fudge. A, we haven't successfully prosecute the idea that you were promised something that can't be delivered. It's that you were knowingly promised by these populists of the right a world that no longer exists and isn't possible to create. The bit that's slightly worrying about the Tommy Robinson stuff for me is it feels that there's a part of the alt-right that has read the the kind of anti-apartheid movement's playbook and are trying to play this back as if he is some kind of hero of people and there's a real sense from people and, and the num- worrying number of people who signed this petition that the reason why he's been done in this case for contempt of court is a politically motivated 
they wanted to get him off the streets and that building of that sense and you start to see the, the bit you asked uh, Connor is yeah, are we going to see more of this the thing it seems we are seeing more of is conspiracy theories there is a sense that people are looking for an explanation that is not the one that's apparent there must be something untoward happening and that is a very potent currency in politics in here in America in France Austria etc and that that feels to be the pattern that is taking place and and they're they're very easily able to tack on to issues that may be resonant within communities. So you know they're they're very much tacking on to the grooming stuff. They're very much uh, mm. sometimes the economic arguments and stuff. And I think part of the thing where we're behind is is that, or not just us, but everybody involved in politics is actually understanding how these arguments play out in communities and 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 really changing our way of working to address that as well mm-hmm. so the old thing that we're at, well actually um this isn't real it's not gonna it's not gonna matter but you know it takes off massively on in in, in social media and then all of a sudden you're 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 out of um uh it's out of control and 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 uh and it's way beyond doing anything uh mm-hmm. that we could in a traditional way richard and hannah do you do you see you keep having um, a revival at some point. We've seen a slight uptick in the polls recently, but what seems to be quite interesting about them is that some of these British-based alt-right online, you know, extremists essentially have joined recently, the likes of Paul Joseph Watson, who's a, you know, video blogger and people like that. And Gerard Batten, the current leader, seems to be much more openly Islamophobic and uh, in tune with these kind of things than even Nigel Farage was particularly. Do you think that will be helpful or do you think maybe that might be a block? From where they are now, I think that will be helpful because it is a rallying cry. And the lesson, um, sadly, to draw from what the kind of Trump campaign is doing is kind of indulge your base, go for strong reactions. We had um, uh, one of our previous podcasts about Mm. that, about the kind of the, the new currency on online and how you kind of um, focus on intensity. So clearly that is, while they are at that low point, they are focusing on intensity. What has previously been the case and the more repugnant you saw Nigel Farage being uh, was a galvanizing force. It was also a limiting. It was their um, fuel, but also the kind of cap uh, for, uh, for what they're doing. And I hope that will be the case for these people. But the slight danger I fear uh, in our politics is that we are all constantly disappointed by the Tories. We think they're wrong on stuff. We think they are turning a blind eye to Islamophobia within their own party uh, too much, etc. But Theresa May is not, she doesn't make right-wing speeches the way Margaret Thatcher did, for example, or, or let alone kind of Tory leaders of 20 years before that. It is a slightly more modern party and many people who think themselves to be progressive people will be voting uh, for them. So it feels like the progressive vote, of which there is more of them, more graduates, more socially liberal people, are split over more people. Mm. The people who are, are prepared and proud to represent that kind of residual part of the electorate is getting smaller, but whether that means they could be a more potent force is, I think, the thing that we've got to be worried about. And again, it's not obvious what the counter strategy to that is, because if you own being called out as being a racist, if you own you know, the, the way that the EDL's previous rallies have been free speech rallies mm. in some ways, which is obviously a, anathema to the rest of us, uh, but that's the kind of language they're using. So they are, they're trying to be proud to be the only people who will say something different. I think perhaps we should also think about this in a slightly different way. I don't think necessarily UKIP are going to come back as an electoral force, although if we do stay 
in Europe pass the next European parliamentary elections, that may change. Um, but I think what we need to look at is the relationships between UKIP and sort of far-right leaders and how they're influencing other people. So, you know, Nigel Farage went to meet Trump. He's in photos with Trump. He has contacts with him. And now we have Gove and Johnson supposedly meeting Steve Bannon. And we mm. know Farage has met Bannon. And actually... And put him on a mainstream radio station. Yeah, absolutely. And these relationships are sort of being built up behind the scenes, which is even perhaps more dangerous than UKIP having a surge in the polls because yeah. it means that we have no idea what they're talking about, how they're colluding in what way, whose resources they're using, who they know, what they're planning. And for me, that's a really dangerous thing. Actually, what I think was really interesting about the Farage-Bannon LBC interview was obviously the audio from after the show had finished was leaked online later on where Steve Bannon was laying into the political editor and essentially Steve Bannon was you know praising Tommy Robinson mm. and Nigel Farage for the first time in his life sounded quite sheepish <laughs> but also sounded you know was disagreeing with Steve Bannon and, and Farage was saying well actually Tommy, Tommy Robinson no one takes him seriously and I thought that was actually a really interesting little divide there that Farage has played such a big role in building this movement and it's kind of getting away from him now and he can't control it. And even he sounded like slightly sceptical of what direction it was heading in. Maybe I'm being a bit pessimistic, but I would always hesitate to say people like Farage are shot by anything. I think you see this tactic in the US, you see people like Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio sort of oh. cover for Trump. And I think it's quite interesting, like Breitbart in the UK, their um, editor, I think it is, is this guy called, I think it's Raheem Kassam, who's yeah, a yeah. British Pakistani, who used to be a conservative and has been in the circles for a while. And that sort of lends what Breitbart UK puts out a stamp of legitimacy because they're not racist because they have a brown person running their site. So how can they be racist? And I think it's always important when we think about, yes, that person looked horrified by this thing. Does it necessarily mean, as we've seen with Trump, that they're willing to do anything about it? Like Gove and Johnson may have a massive problem with the sort of Islamophobic anti-migrant rhetoric that lots of the Brexiteers put out during their campaign. But did they stop it? No, because it helped what they were trying to achieve. I think it's really important to remember that because we can't police it. I, I worry more that Nigel Farage wanted you to say that on this podcast. Though. That's part, <laughs> like the brand that he well, has maybe, prosecuted yeah. is that um, is to indulge this, but to to say no. And he yeah you know, he will he says I I have stopped EDL people coming and joining mm. UKIP at the past. So he he has a part of his brand is that he has policed this border to UKIP, and he's saying what. Um, is reasonable, but won't be said by the kind of liberal middle classes. Um, that is, I think you're right that it's kind mm. of got away from him and he's created a kind of monster that he can't control. But I think for him and his chance of coming back, that's part of his default script about him and the leader he is, which is why he arguably could get them to 20% um, rather than around eight or whatever. Mm. That's interesting because um, obviously Steve Bannon is now talking about how he wants to build a Europe-wide movement that is interlinked. And obviously we've seen Le Pen in France. She came second in the presidential uh, elections. Uh, there's the uh, alternative for Deutschland in Germany that are very successful now. Um, Orban in Hungary. And 
if they were competent at linking these movements together, is that something to really start worrying about, do you think? I think it is. I think also that there's a big thing here. The the established far-right, oh, sorry, the, the, the established right-wing uh, party, so in, in the UK, the, the Conservative Party, has a lot to answer for here. You know, why are we in this mess with Brexit now? Because David Cameron decided this is the way to mm. uh, appease the right-wing of his party and, and beyond mm. and, 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 and to, to, to uh, destroy UKIP. And... and 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 it hasn't worked, and, and, and we're in this situation. So, the the thing is, is if people need to, to need to understand that the argument isn't always that simple, um, mm. and and the solutions aren't always certainly always aren't that simple. You know, if there are economic problems out there in our country, we need to solve them. If people have got problems and people have got concerns about immigration because they're in, in threat of losing their job because it's being shipped abroad, well, that's something we need to deal with. Yeah, we can't look the other way and then when somebody makes a populist argument about that then just just say well actually uh we'll, we'll just throw them us up and, and try and try and try and try and try and uh, uh close it off it doesn't work because mm. also i think you know one of the questions about steve bannon's europe project which i think is going to be called the movement and he he kind of sees himself as almost a right-wing alternative to george soros and the uh, open society uh, uh, movement um one of the questions that would remain is what would it link up with on the right of british politics in this country and obviously there's ukip that seems a bit of a spent force or there's all of these kind of street gangs and this rising profile of tommy robinson who obviously steve bannon is a big fan of but the fact that then as you say henna He's got these contacts with people who were brig in the mainstream Brexit movement, Boris Johnson, Michael Gove now. That's got to be really worrying, isn't it? I think it has, because there is clearly bits where the edges of the Conservative Party are slightly frayed. Because it feels like these are these are um, people who are kind of at the end of their tether with what the Conservatives are doing with Brexit yeah. and might look for a much more radical solution to get what they want out of it. I think that's true, but also I think that very, very small amounts of money could have very disproportionate impact for these people. So they're currently having quite a lot of impact while self-funding their blogs, their podcasts, their YouTubes, their uh, yeah, their Facebook reach. Like small amounts could get that real um, purchase um, through the system. So, and yeah, if you're Steve Bannon, do you need there to be one force in Britain? I don't think you do, because if you look at how that bit of the fascist right has organised is at some point somebody gets a monopoly in that group and dominates for about 15, 20 years. The fact that's in flux at the moment is surely an opportunity for them rather than a a risk is you just throw lots of things yeah. at the wall and see which one sticks, right? And and so that that's the bit and, and that will move quite quick. And also it will move in a way that we might not, I mean, hope not, hate it, thankfully so far ahead of this and do this work um, for us. But the internet could change this very quickly on who the person is, who the vehicle is. Suddenly these have got lots of likes or whatever. Um, but I think the danger for me is that small amounts of money will have disproportionate impact. But what is the counter? What would be the antidote? Is it funding the left per se, the centre, um, reason-based arguments, debating clubs in every school that doesn't have one? Like, it's unclear what the, what the antidote to this is. And that's what worries me. And I completely agree with that. I think I keep reading more and more things that um, keep comparing us to Weimar Germany. I don't think we're Weimar Germany. Germany this is a country rather than this progress. Is... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, progress, we are Weimar Germany. But there's definitely a sort of feeling that at the moment we're caught between 
the far right or a certain extreme tendency of right-wing politics typified by Brexit, Islamophobia, anti-immigrant rhetoric, and a move of left-wing politics towards the left. You know, you have people saying, oh, yeah, I'm literally a communist, whatever communism is back in fashion, apparently, mm. and promising all these people like their entire lives are going to be automated and, you know, they're going to never have to work and they'll have like robot butlers, whatever. But my concern is sort of coming back to the conversation that, that we were having earlier, this gap, one in the middle, but also two for the solution of what comes next after neither bashing immigrants works, nor do we live in some kind of tech utopia where everyone has robots do stuff for them. And like, what is the next step then? And which political force exists in order to pick up that mantle? And how do we start creating that now? Because it seems that we're splitting apart to such an extent that we're going to very soon come into contact with a problem where people realize that neither of these two things are going to be a solution. I know I wanted to pick up something that Richard mentioned that I know that you have a bit of interest in as well but and I think relates to this point a bit which is that actually if you have one of these kind of simple analyses of how the world works and how it should work then you are able to get that into you know the first 10 seconds of a Facebook video or or whatever and the far right does seem to be particularly adept at using social media to to gain traction how big a role do you think that's played in, in this resurgence? Um, this gives me a great opportunity to talk about memes, which I think <laughs> sound a bit ridiculous, but are actually fascinating. Mm. So you've got the big sort of poster boy for the far right is Pepe the Frog. If you've seen him as this little green frog with big eyes. It's um, a cartoon. It's, it's a, a cartoon. cartoon drawing, yeah. To make that clear. Um, <laughs> and he sort of became, or cartoons featuring him became the vehicle and sort of an easy mode of transmission, particularly in America for alt-right views. And we see that here now. So we have this discussion. What is it? People only really pay attention for about five seconds of a Facebook video, whatever. And actually these kinds of narratives, whether that's, you know, if you get rid of all the immigrants, your life will be much easier because you'll have a job. Or uh, if you just wait and become a communist and we'll get robots that will save our lives. Both of these things are, in, in essence, in my opinion, two sides of the same coin mm -hmm. in that they're perfectly weaponized for our social media age in that they're easy to disseminate and easy to push forward in sort of hilarious memes or, you know, me to me, don't be a social democrat, you know, yeah. instead, <laughs> sorry, um, you know, in, instead wait for the robots to save you. It's very easy to put that message forward and to criticize and to say, look, this is what I think via the medium of a picture that you can share or via a video that sets out a stall in five or 10 seconds. And the echo chamber of social media really, really aids that. And what's it's really interesting is we see the fragmentation of politics we see people on the right and people on the left but even though social media is meant to sort of broaden reach and connect people who aren't connected normally actually what I feel is that it's siloed us so you only really see and interact with people or institutions or media outlets that believe what you believe and you see that you know the readers of Breitbart will only read and share Breitbart and then they'll see the alt-right memes that come from those Facebook groups same thing with the left you have people who read like Squawk Box and those memes that come out from there and those are the narratives that they seize onto I think for both the far right and the far left this is one a great way of them moving their message and across and a great vehicle for people like Steve Bannon who want to push money into this but also really dangerous for our 
critical discourse as a whole because you mm. don't see views that are critical to you. Like you can't put forward a nuanced argument in a meme. Like it's basically impossible. I mean, I can try, but it's basically impossible. And that's something we have to be really aware but of. But also what is the point of making a nuanced argument within a bubble? Because... If, if you're in a bubble, you've not seen the other side of the argument in the first place to see why Absolutely. that nuisance is, is, is Grinder, possibly necessary. How are you trying to deal with this at Hope Not Hate? Because this seems to be a pretty fundamental challenge to the work that you're doing and, and, and the kind of hope that you bring in politics to various communities. Yeah, so we, we, we've realised and, and, and the, the work we've done over the years. So even when we were doing, when we had the electoral strategy of the BNP, so where BNP councillors were successful traditionally and even UKIP sub subsequently tended to be white working class areas where there was always been Labour councillors for years and years and years. And then suddenly you found the Labour Party locally or the councillors weren't connecting with their communities. There was mm -hmm. a vacuum. Somebody else came in and took it. Yeah. Um, and, and where there is the electoral strategy, where there is these, this whole new stuff online or on the streets and stuff, it comes back to actually what, what, what work are we doing with our, with our communities? So even, even when we were, even when we defeated UKIP councillors or BMP councillors and, 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 you know, a new Labour person got elected and stuff, well, actually the behaviour didn't change. Mm. Yeah, so we we changed our strategy in then. So it's not just about defeating the mm. person, but it's about supporting the community to understand what's going on around them, to to appreciate that, uh, and and to be able to take advantage of the opportunities they are given, the confidence, the training, etc., uh, the the knowledge, the you know, the skills, uh, and the tools to be able to make a difference in their own lives and their own communities. And I think it comes back to the same thing, even on on the online stuff. Is, is you know we, we I I I'm I'm a school governor and we we just uh, approved a uh, a digital strategy going forward. Every child going to have a device. But actually, the conversation we talked that that took place about that was: is it about giving children devices, and wh where is then the human contact with that, and what is it really about? And and what it's really about is about use. It's about having people trained up understanding the, the 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 scope of those devices the power of them and actually teaching our young people how to use them and 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 the limitations and and the threats of them and the risks of them as well so you have to be critical with the information you to, you're receiving because that absolutely, seems to be absolutely. The, it's it's about understanding what what is fake news how do you hmm. how do you identify it yeah when is somebody trying to misuse your data to to lead you down a path where you actually might, might not want to go you know it's about those kind of things so um it, the, the, the end thing we're trying to do hasn't changed. The way we're going to have to do it is changing because the, the nature of the, 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 uh, the, the threat is changing. And that is effective. It's about empowering people to understand what's going on around them, giving them the confidence and, and the power to be able to stand up and speak for themselves. Um, and if you do that, I think all the evidence shows, and, and I hope not hate it, done uh, what we call our fear and hope report. Mm. We've done, been doing this, this in 2011. We did one again last year uh, after the um, uh, after the uh, re referendum, and what he's showing is over the years, the people who are more progressive, the people who are more accept accepting of immigration, of multiculturalism, actually that those that group of people in the UK is growing, and actually are also more likely to speak out. You've still got the far right, and you've still got people who are susceptible to those messages, but I think if we can grow that. If we can grow, if we can, uh, through the work we do, uh, assist people in understanding what's going on around them and be more empowered themselves, 
then that, that has to be the only solution. Calling it out seems to be quite an important thing then, doesn't it? If the, it's, it's empowering people to do that because, I mean, I've witnessed various racist incidents over the years. Uh, I remember particularly one at university that was quite unpleasant in a nightclub and a friend of mine said something that was abhorrent. I called it out and my friends had a kind of six of one, half a dozen of the other, the two of you ruined our night out. And I was like, hold on. He said, don't racist. And I said, don't be racist. Like, I don't quite, they're not. Mm. But it does feel at the moment that that is sadly the the reality. If you called it out, you get treated more harshly or as harsh as the person who's originally the perpetrator. And giving people the resilience to still do it anyway seems to me to be one of the skills we should be imparting. And I think what it really needs, so that's made me think of something, is a sea change. So I remember when I was at university, we used to have lots of incidents of sort of laddishness and sexism, which was really like now on reflection, really quite bad. But we thought all that behavior was sort of acceptable yeah. and normal. Oof. And you would be the person to be in trouble if you called it out because it's sort of a, it's a boys club. And since sort of in two or three years between when I started at university and when I left, that had completely changed. The attitude of everyone had changed. The attitude of the boys coming into university was changing. And that was just because I think there was a cultural moment around women's rights and how you speak to women and the way you interact with sexism and gender issues in a way that there, I don't think has been about race yet. I think, I don't know whether you agree, but it sort of brings me back to when Tom would say something and you would say something and it would all be very uncomfortable and you wouldn't feel very supported. Whereas actually now it's very easy to be very supported and what was acceptable then is never acceptable now. And I think perhaps there's, we're waiting for the sea change. And I, I, I actually see that actually more people now are likely to speak out on these things than they mm. were perhaps five years ago, even two years yeah. ago. Uh, I think that's growing. That's really um, good. It's, it's not where we want it to be, but it's certainly growing, and, and not just on racism, you know, on LGBT mm. stuff, on on, on sexism, um, uh, you know, the, the whole, whole mm. scheme, all, all this stuff. I think more people are likely to speak out now than they were previously. The, the challenge is is is, what, is is how do you encourage people to, to do that more? And, and and to stand up and, and my and experience it. post the borough market thing you know i said something that was positive and people rallied to it because they mm. were desperate for there to be something positive they didn't want to fall into a council of despair yeah. and felt there was a kind of way that this media cycle would play and and, and somebody gave a counter narrative and that was quite positive so i think there, there is some hope that we can take from it and certainly the findings of that fear and hope report do seem to show a really positive changing britain um in a, in a progressive way and and while we kind of worry about a lot of things that are happening in the country it's good to know that underneath the currents may still be coming in the right direction a bit i'm afraid we do need to leave it there but at least it is on a positive note mm-hmm. Gorinda, thanks for coming in and best of luck on the nec election that is happening at the moment where people can vote for the next six weeks i think it is best of luck to you and the other eight center-left candidates Do stick with us because next we'll have the political pub quiz. Every week we ask a political pub quiz question. This week's question is... So coming back to Steve Bannon, I Mm. thought um, he once said that darkness is good using the examples of Dick Cheney, Satan and which Hollywood baddie to prove his point. I really want to guess that one. (laughs) (laughs) Send your answers to office at progressonline.org.uk or via Twitter 
at Progress Online. And you too could be in with a chance of winning one of our famous Progress mugs. <laughs> We've been delighted to have Gurinder Singh Josan on the podcast today. We'll be back on Friday with a review show. In the meantime, please do send us any questions that you have. Do leave a review on iTunes and do subscribe and rate. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to the brilliant Caroline Crampton who produced this podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.